You're listening to Radio Free Philosophy. I've got a question for you. Imagine you were a prisoner in a world of shadows and illusions separate from the real world. How would you get free? Boy, that sounds like the Matrix to me. It's actually the starting point of Plato's philosophy, which claims that the world we live in is not the real world at all. The irony is that for Plato, the real world is one of ideas, not objects. Join us as we discuss his theory and see how Plato really was the first to invite us to leave the Matrix. Welcome to the desert of the real. philosopher we study about in this course deals with reality of some sort. And when we talk about Plato, we talk about a man who came to grips with the problem of reality. What is real? In Plato's time, he was confronted with the problem of change. Every single philosopher that he dealt with, that he knew, grappled with change. It seems that all people know in life is change. And that's pretty much our own reality, too. Change is everywhere. Um, to have lived long is to have changed often. Everything changes. Nothing's the same. That was, in fact, uh, one of the comments that um, a predecessor of Plato made, right? Heraclitus. Heraclitus uh, exactly. His whole philosophy was based on the idea that everything is in a constant state of flux. And I imagine people in Plato's day might have asked the same question we could ask now, which is, okay, yeah, change is obvious, and it happens, so why is it a philosophical problem at all? I mean, why, why can't we just accept change as a given? Well, Heraclitus um, thought the world was, the best model of viewing the world is fire. Have you ever looked into a campfire? It's always changing. It's never the same. And that's kind of a model of life. We have the old saying, you can't go home again. You can never go back to your past. The past is no longer there. It's changed. Right. So, uh, Heraclitus said a similar thing about uh, a river, right? You can't step into the same river twice. Exactly. Once you step into the river, different water has flowed by, and so by the time you put your second foot in, it's, it's in some sense a different river. And, of course, his point, I take it, was that that was true of everything on a certain level because everything is in that constant state of flux. Sure, and this isn't just in, in the world of the Greek philosophers. It's in our world, too. We, we've all had the experience of growing up with friends and being separated from them and then rejoining them after a while, maybe at a class reunion or something, and they're not the same people. And they're saying the same thing about us. We've changed. That's right, and that does seem to illustrate the problem that I think Plato is trying to grapple with because you mentioned the example of a class reunion. When I go back to my 10- or 20-year class reunion, they've changed, but there's something I still recognize about them that's the same. That's right. And so the question is, in a world of change, how do you recognize that there really are some things that remain constant? Or maybe a better way of putting it is, in a world of change, do there have to be things that remain constant? We seem to long for that. You know, in my um, high school yearbook, I can see many people writing after my picture and the pictures of other people, don't change. 
it's like we want to hold on to something. We want some permanence in life because we fear that the rest of life is going to be nothing but change. Right, right. And for Plato, there's even a more fundamental point, it seems like, because his insight was you really can't have reality if everything is in constant change. I mean, you can't have knowledge, certainly, if everything is in a constant state of change. Um, I don't know if this is an example that Plato used, but I can imagine him using, because it's a mathematical example, which he often used, uh, examples of mathematics. Suppose I'm in a math class, and the teacher says, two and two is four. And then the next day, when the teacher reviews the concept of addition, uh, he says, two and two is five. Well, in some sense, there's no way I can gain knowledge of mathematics if knowledge itself is in a constant state of flux. That is precisely the problem Plato faced. The question is truth. Is anything true if everyone has different opinions about what the truth is? There must be some truth out there. And Plato said if there wasn't something out there that's true, there can be no truth at all. But not everyone agreed with that uh, sentiment that we might say, uh, uh, what would be a good term for that? Uh, objectivism has a sort of a different connotation, but that might be the best term for it for now. The idea that there is such a thing as objective truth. Protagoras, for instance, very much disagreed with that idea, saying man is the measure of all things. He's famous for that statement. But if man is the measure of all things, let's see what that really means. It means every single individual human being determines reality. And that means reality differs from person to person. That the subject self is the source of reality. If that is the case, then there is no objective reality. There is no objective truth. And you can say there's no objective morality. I mean, what's good? The good varies from person to person according to their own impressions of the good. I think a lot of people, though, pre-reflectively agree with that idea. And I say pre-reflectively because once you get them to see the consequences of it, they do concede that there are serious problems with that. But sort of before they think about it, it sounds like a good idea. You have your morality, I have mine. You have your reality, I have mine. We can be tolerant of each other. Mm -hmm. And so let's just let everybody have their own reality. But in practical terms, never mind philosophical terms, it, it just can't work. Sure, we see this often in our ethics classes that we teach. We see students very, very reluctant to admit that there, or even acknowledge that there might be an objective norm of morality out there, because then they would have to subscribe to it, and they'd much prefer the Protagoras view. Right. Everybody makes their own morality. And so Plato's got an uphill uh, struggle, he to say the least, to convince us that there is such a thing as objectivity, and worse than that, for Plato, not only is there such a thing as objectivity, but it's hard to grapple with because it's not here. It's in a transcendent That's world, right. he says. That's right. And so here we are in the matrix, or to use Plato's analogy, uh, in a cave, and reality is outside that cave. And the question is, how do we get there? Yeah, and that's not an ivory tower philosophical problem. Again, we experience nothing but change in life. Life is change. But if that's all there is, then there's nothing permanent. And that's frightening for a lot of people. It's frightening for everyone. If there's no permanence and everything has changed, then there's nothing to hold on to. So Plato's problem is not a philosophical one. It's a life problem. And I think one of his great successes was to make his students aware of that in his dialogues. So let's examine 
how it is that Plato uh, gets to this concept of the transcendent, given that it's not an obvious concept that hits you in the face. In fact, quite the opposite. Change is the obvious constant that hits you in the face. Uh, so where should we, we begin with uh, Plato's theory? Well, maybe a basic distinction between the ways we know. For example, much of our knowledge comes through our senses, and it's very specific. We feel hot. We feel cold. We hear noise. We see color. And that gives us a certain kind of knowledge. But for the Greek philosophers, that wasn't the only kind of knowledge and wasn't the only way of knowing. Sensory knowledge was one way of knowing, but there's another way of knowing, and that is through the intellect. And that's a much abused word, but the intellect was an actual power of the human mind that they identified that could, could make abstractions from material things, that could see an abstraction like goodness after experiencing a lot of good things or could make an abstraction called truth after experiencing many true um, relationships. Yeah, and even uh, in a more mundane case, I can talk about uh, a tree as a general idea, even though there is no general tree, there are specific trees, but I can conceive of the general idea of a tree. And so what we have to do is figure out how to explain that, that ability, right? That's right, and that is exactly what the intellect was seen to have done. Um, and so the things that the intellect knows are called intelligible things or ideas. So in the example you used, we see many concrete trees and different kinds of trees, but, and we see them through our senses. We experience them. We can feel the bark. We can see the color of the leaves and the shape. We can see the fruits of the trees. But the intellect takes all those experiences and abstracts them into an idea called tree-ness, a general idea that applies to all possible trees. That's the work of the intellect to make these abstractions. And that helps us identify tree after tree after tree because we have the idea called tree, tree-ness. And uh, Aristotle, one of Plato's students, pro probably would have objected to the next leap in thinking that Plato made, but we'll, we'll investigate Aristotle later. But then uh, Plato seems to from the idea of being able to conceive of these general concepts, deduce that there are real ideas, capital I, we might say, that are actual existing objects that are the cause of our ability to conceive of these general ideas. Exactly. The, you use the word uppercase I, or the word idea with a capital I, and that's great because that's different from lowercase ideas for Plato. You can have a lot of ideas floating around the world, but they have no root, they have no ground, they have no, no um, meaning unless there is, in really existing form, an idea with a capital I. And that idea has to be somewhere that's not confined to space and time. It must be transcendent. Otherwise, it couldn't apply to all the individual trees or ideas in space and time. And that Plato called the world of ideas with a capital I. Now, I know when I tell my students this, sometimes they, they start rolling their eyes and think, oh, boy, here we are making up stuff. But I try to stop and caution them about doing that because most of them, in fact, believe in this concept of a transcendent world that Plato was talking about. They might not think of it in those terms. They might not use the word transcendent. 
but they do believe in a world beyond the world of the senses, many of them. Yes, they do. They call it heaven, maybe, mm -hmm. or sure. the afterlife. The afterlife, sure, sure. And so Plato's really not doing anything incredibly far-fetched. No. In fact, Plato was seized, uh, his ideas were seized by many religious thinkers in Christianity. Um, the, the idea of the good, for example, this idea with a capital I, the good was associated with God because Plato made the point that the good sheds light on every bit of our knowledge. It's the good, the idea of the good. That's the consummate idea and the idea that permits us to know everything. Sure, and he provides a, a good philosophical justification for, as you mentioned, some of that uh, theology that came later. Sure, it was easy uh, to, to identify the good with God. Sure. Well, it's only one letter off. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so maybe what we'll do is uh, let's take a little break, and then when we come back, we'll talk about in more specific detail how Plato deduces this theory, which seems on the surface to be far-fetched, but actually uh, is quite plausible at least in the philosophical sense of the word. Sure, let's do that. You're listening to Radio Free Philosophy. Okay, so before the break, we were talking about Plato's theory of ideas, which are sometimes called the forms, and we were trying to approach it from the standpoint of what motivated him to come up with the theory in the first place, the, the problem of change, right? Mm -hmm. uh, one way I look at it is as sort of a deductive process. I mean, Plato is trying to, in essence, explain two things, change on the one hand, which we talked about, and then knowledge, how knowledge is possible, which is an epistemology question. Uh, so we know knowledge is possible. The question is, where does this knowledge come from? Well, one answer that you mentioned earlier was, well, knowledge could just come from our senses, right? Mm -hmm. Was that a, a reasonably popular view in Plato's day, the idea that knowledge did come from the senses? Sure. It couldn't be denied that some, at least some knowledge came from the senses. Some, and that's the key for Plato because... If all knowledge came from the senses, there were lots of things we couldn't have knowledge of. Mm -hmm. Take uh, equality, the notion of equality. Well, if you look mm -hmm. around the world of sense experience, Plato says you can't get any information about absolute equality, but we have this concept. Mm -hmm. And so we have to answer the question, where did this knowledge come from? So knowledge has to be connected, according to Plato, with something that doesn't change. And again, you run into a problem because if you look around the world, you see that there really aren't any things that don't change. Plato actually agrees with uh, Heraclitus's idea that everything in this world, at least, is yes. in a constant state of flux. But knowledge has to be of something constant. Now that creates a problem. What is knowledge connected to? It's got to be a constant. There aren't any constants here. And so this is where Plato makes what's really a pretty radical leap in thinking from the visible to the mental. Sure, and it's pretty obvious why the, that leap has to be made. We could never agree on anything if everything were changing. If your ideas were changing all the time and mine were, we could never agree on the meaning of a word even. That's right. I mean, table, we could talk about a table, except that if the table is always changing, we can't come to an agreement about what the table is, never mind what we could use the table for, what the table is made of, or anything else. Precisely. So we, we couldn't even get a conversation going. And Heraclitus said exactly that. This table is not the same table as when I used the word this a moment ago. It's changed. 
and changes that radical for Heraclitus. So we've got to have something stable to hang our knowledge yes. on. And for Plato, that's this notion of ideas with a capital I, or the forms, which he also uses as a term to describe it. Yeah, that word throws people off, the word form. Again, a capital F. It doesn't mean the same thing as it does in English, in the sense of shapes, like a circle or a parallelogram or something like that. Um, form is an idea with a capital I, and it has no existence in the, in the spatio-temporal world. It exists in another world where there is no matter, where there is no space, and there is no time. And that's how Plato deduced the world of ideas, or the world of forms. And this is hard for a lot of people, I think, to grasp, and even having grasped it, to buy into, because we're so trained to think in terms of the senses for our knowledge. Yes. And how in the world can we even talk about something that's outside the world of space and time, much less believe such a thing exists? Yeah, Plato shows us that we have to. Otherwise, we'd just be babbling to each other. And our, our knowledge would be like our opinions, changing all the time. Well, now here's a challenge we might want to uh, put to Plato and see uh, what we can do to, to defend him against this challenge. Uh, how do you go about proving the existence of such a thing that cannot be grasped in a sense experience sense? You, you have to use reasoning, right? You have to exactly. use logic. Yes. And so you have to use ideas. And, and ideas exist independently. And they aren't just the ideas in our minds. Our minds' ideas are copies of the idea in the world of forms or the world of ideas. For example, truth the very concept of truth. We get it from knowing true relationships or true um, equivalences of some sort. So we have an idea of truth in our mind. That's intelligible to us. But Plato maintains we wouldn't have that at all if a, an idea called truth didn't exist in a separate world that was unaffected by change and not constrained by matter. Or time. That raises an interesting question uh, in terms of how Plato goes about defending his theory, because what's wrong with the picture of thinking that the idea is simply derived from our experience of things that are changing, instead of Plato's notion that the idea is coming from something independent of change? Well, we see that often, for example, when we speak of the rule of law. What is law? Is law something that means different things to you and me and other people? Does it change from time to time? How can you have a rule of law unless there is a concept called law that doesn't change? Yeah, I might use a, an analogy uh, having to do with uh, the Constitution. Uh, many people make the argument that the United States Constitution is a living document. It mm -hmm. changes with time. And uh, Plato's response to that might be, something on the order of uh, the economist Walter Williams who says, well, you can't have rules that are living. I mean, suppose you and I want to play poker and the rules are living. So sometimes my pair beats your full house. So you want to play me poker? Right. Probably not. Uh -huh. So th there's got to be some notion of fixed concepts, and that seems to be exactly what Plato is saying. Sure, sure. In transactions between people, the concept justice we know what just transactions are. We know what unjust transactions are. We've all been cheated from time to time. But there would be no 
permanent justice in the world, no concept of it, unless, as Plato says, the idea or the form justice did not exist in the really real world of ideas. Yeah, and I would hate for the uh, police officer on the street to be making up the concept of justice as he went along, because <laughs> that, that could lead to some serious consequences. Mm-hmm. But how does this idea in the transcendent world affect the world that we live in, where everything does change? Well, just what you mentioned, what if, what if justice were arbitrary and dependent on the whims or the opinions of a law enforcement officer or a judge? There would be no justice in the world. There'd be profiling, there'd be, there'd be favoritism, there'd be, um, there'd be a world in which justice were not blind, and we couldn't have a world like that. So Plato seems to be using that kind of evidence to deduce the existence of these things that we can't see, when we know they have to be there because of what we do see, what yes. we do think. And one of the very interesting aspects of this, which is not at all self-evident, but Plato, again, deduces this, is the nature of the forms themselves. How do we get knowledge of something that we can't see? Well, we have to think. We have to reason. And one of the things Plato reasons from is this notion of the form being independent of change must mean that the form is eternal because coming into being and going out of existence are types of change. That's right. That's right. So the forms are immune from change and therefore they have to be eternal. There's eternal beauty truth, the good, justice that we just discussed. If they change, we could never rely on our knowledge at all. So underlying our knowledge must be these forms. I know a lot of people don't like that idea. You know, they they say truth is in the eye of the beholder, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, justice is in the eye of the beholder. And even though those ideas have frightening consequences, they seem appealing to many people. I think it's actually quite uh, disturbing that all those things would be in the eye of the beholder. Much better, much more stable if those things are eternal, independent of the world of flux that we live in. Sure. In in our real world, we yearn for some kind of standards or permanence. We devise codes of ethics to determine how senators and uh, our representatives should relate, uh, shouldn't take bribes, etc., we, we develop standards of conduct for, for example, to protect people from sexual harassment uh, in the workplace. And we want those standards to be universal and apply to everybody everywhere. So we're yearning for some kind of permanence. Even, as you mentioned, with beauty being in the eyes of the beholder, what about a film? Can a film critic bring certain standards or canons of... of interpretation to a film and say this is a good film or reject the film as being poor Um, and the same is true about poetry what makes a good poem aren't there standards that are universal but a critic of Plato might say well the fact that you want standards doesn't create the standards I mean all you're doing is just wishing for this objective world but there's really no evidence that it's there yes we'll see later that Aristotle objected precisely to that, to that about Plato, but Plato said that forms have a quality which enables them to participate in every sensible material thing or every relationship in the world. That you can only have a true thing or a true relationship because it participates in the idea called truth. 
yeah, we've been approaching this from the standpoint of knowledge, but really Plato is also making a metaphysical point. The knowledge of our objects is informed by these ideas in the transcendent world, but objects themselves are caused to exist by these ideas as well. I mean, the reality of the world that we live in is dependent on those ideas in the transcendent world. Yes, indeed. We're talking about being itself. And I know it's a, it's a hard concept for people to grasp, but it's a field of philosophy called ontology, the study of being. And knowledge and being are very much related. We can't know what isn't. <laughs> it doesn't right. exist. Yeah, Plato uh, was actually inspired by a philosopher who said exactly that, Parmenides. Mm -hmm. Right, the idea that uh, if you can know something, it has to exist. Because as you say, how in the world can you grasp or know nothing, no thing? I mean, if there is nothing, yeah, there's nothing you could say about that. You could divide the world into being and non-being. And non-being is what you don't know. You can't possibly know it. It's not there. So if you can know something, it must exist. And that is Plato's path to, to asserting the real existence of forms. That's why he's called a realist. He asserts that these ideas really exist. Right, we just don't make them up. Uh, in fact, uh, our, our, the ideas that we do discuss have as their source these ideas in the transcendent world, mm -hmm. capital I. Again, we probably should come up with a better way of making this distinction in audio terms between ideas, capital I, and lowercase i. But this is really the distinction Plato is making. The ideas in our mind are, in some sense, caused by the capital I ideas yes. in, the, in the world of uh, ideas. And this made Plato very popular with the early Christian philosophers. Uh, they adopted Plato, Augustine did, and certainly well into the Middle Ages in the 11th century, Anselm of Canterbury adopted Plato when his monks, Anselm was an abbot, a Benedictine monastery, and his monks came to him and asked him to prove the existence of God. And he did just that. He, he showed the relationship between knowledge and being. His, his proof goes something like this. If you can know something, it must exist. So if you can have an idea of the most perfect being in the universe, then that being must exist. And if you make God that most perfect being in the entire universe, then God must truly really exist. And Plato would back that up by saying it's not the idea in your mind that creates the necessity of God. It's God that's creating the necessity of the idea in your mind. Yes. I mean, you cannot think of this being as not existing. It's impossible. Right. That's because the idea exists, not because you want it to be so. Yeah, on a smaller scale, you could never say, you could never look at a sunset and say, that's a beautiful sunset, unless the concept of beauty existed first. Right, and even if you destroyed all the beautiful things in this world, the concept of beauty would still, still remain. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because as we said before, it's it's eternal, it's immutable. It's yes. not uh, subject to the change that we see in this world. And, and in a certain sense, uh, neither are we, because Plato makes the huge leap. I mean, the leap to the transcendent was pretty big, but an even bigger leap is that we gain our knowledge of the forms prior to our own existence, in some sense, in this world. We're, we're yes. born with this knowledge. Yes. Uh, in Plato's mythology, um, we all existed in the world of forms, the world of ideas. We were perfectly content. 
and for some reason or another we were banished from that form, world of forms and uh, were imprisoned in a body by being born. Now how did that go over in the world of uh, medieval the theology? Because that seems to be contrary to the notion of Christian theology. Not very well. A, a Christian philosopher, one of the greatest Christian philosophers and theologians named Origen, adopted this idea of pre-existence and, and even reincarnation. And uh, he was roundly condemned as a heretic. Okay, so we've only got a couple of minutes left. Uh, how can we sum up uh, this character, Plato, this philosopher that's inviting us to leave the matrix, so to speak? Why don't we relate it to our own experience? Who of us as children or who of us have not seen children crying out, that's not fair when they play a game? Well, the very concept fairness exists for Plato, and, and that's what enables a child to cry out, that's not fair. It doesn't correspond to an idea, an idea that really exists. We all we, we long for ideas to be out there because they're, they give us stability. They ground us. So Plato is not an up-in-the-air, ivory tower philosopher. He, he appeals to our need for some kind of permanence, for some kind of stability. And you know, there's actually some good scientific research being done now that seems to at least partially uh, justify Plato's claim that these concepts are innate, that we're born with them. Uh, this notion of fairness is one that's actually been uh, studied, and the idea that science might be able to bear out what Plato is saying about at least the innate component, mm -hmm. if not the transcendent component, uh, is interesting because one of Plato's students, and turned out one of his most ardent critics, was uh, himself a scientist. Yes, a biologist. Aristotle, Aristotle sure. yeah. And so uh, next time we'll investigate what Aristotle has to say about Plato, which is not entirely dismissive. He, he takes seriously some of Plato's ideas, but adapts them to, uh, to a different uh, theory. Like any good student, he learned from his master, and he was creative in the same, at the same time. You're listening to Radio Free Philosophy. 